Uh, we're going to be continuing on in our uh, series through the book of John. We've been walking through the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 14 this morning. So if you want to start turning there in your Bibles, hopefully you do have a Bible with you. There are also some Bibles on the pew backs in front of you as well. Uh, John is the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you hit Acts, you've gone too far. Um, the words will also be on the screen behind me as I read them, but I'd encourage you to read along in your physical Bible if you, uh, if you have one. Um, so just to, before we read the text, just to remind you where we're at, to give you the context. Uh, last week we were in John 13, and we talked about how in the first 12 chapters of John, it covers a period of about three years. But then in the last eight chapters, uh, well, well, the next seven chapters of John, it's going to cover a period of about 18 hours. So things are slowing down a lot in the pace of the narrative and all of these events in John 13, really all the way through chapter 17, are taking place at the Last Supper. So Jesus knows he's about to go to the cross. The disciples don't fully understand what's about to happen. And so all of these things that Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying to them, knowing he's about to go to the cross. And so uh, that's what, where we're at in John chapter 14. So that'll help you uh, kind of set some context as we read. Uh, I'm going to read the passage, uh, verses 1 to 14, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump in, okay? Here's what God's word says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Um, Jesus, I thank you that you uh, have revealed God to us, that um, if anyone has seen you, they have seen the Father. God, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see you truly for who you are this morning. Pray that as we look upon you, as Thomas was just praying a moment ago, that Jesus, we would treasure you, that we would see how glorious, how wonderful, how beautiful you are. I pray that 
If there's anyone in this room, God, that is not convinced that, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life, that today would be the day that they would be convinced that you would be gracious to them and open their eyes, that they'd be saved. And I pray that you would encourage and comfort your church, your people this morning as we read the amazing truths here in John 14, 1-14, as we read your amazing promises, God. Lord, comfort those who are walking through troubled times with your word this morning. We love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So John uh, 14, 6 is a verse that many uh, of you have probably heard before. It's a very well-known verse where Jesus says, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, But what many don't realize is that these words come in the midst of Jesus comforting his disciples as he was preparing them for his departure. So in about 18 hours from now, Jesus will be dying on a cross. The disciples don't know that this is coming yet, but Jesus did. And so he wanted to prepare them for the troubling times that he knew they were about to walk through. So Jesus told them, and if we back up just a little bit, in cha- at the end of chapter 13 and verse 33, Jesus says, Little children... Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. Of course, the disciples didn't understand this. Uh, So they questioned Jesus and asked him, why can't we follow you? Why can't we go where you're going? They thought Jesus was just going to go to another town. And so uh, Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you? And he even boldly declares, he says, I'm willing to die for you, Jesus. I'll follow you anywhere. I'll go anywhere you go. He wouldn't understand the irony of of that statement when he said, I'm willing to die for you. He wouldn't understand the irony of that statement until later. Because not only would Peter deny Jesus three times, it was actually Jesus that would die for Peter and for us. But Jesus knew that all of what was about to take place would shatter their worlds. He knew their worlds were about to be shattered in 18 hours. He knew that they wouldn't understand what was happening. He knew that they were unnerved by his declaration that he was about to go away and that they wouldn't be able to find him. So Jesus spent time comforting his disciples in John 14, 1-14. Let's just pause here and not overlook the fact that this is an amazing display of the tender love of Jesus. That he would comfort his disciples as he's about to go to the cross. He's concerned about the troubling times they are about to walk through. Not to mention the own, his own troubling time that he's about to walk through. In verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So the way that the disciples were to not let their hearts to become troubled was to trust in him. Jesus says, trust me, believe in me. And in the following 14 verses, Jesus gave the disciples reasons to do that, to do so, to trust him. Specifically, Jesus gave the disciples four comforts to believe as they prepared to walk through these troubling times of confusion and uncertainty. And thankfully, these words of comfort apply to us today just as they did to the disciples in John 14. God will also call us to walk through trying times of confusion and uncertainty. And maybe you're walking through a time like that right now in your life. 
If you're not, it's inevitable that at some point you will. It may be a long season of depression. It might be a chronic physical ailment, financial stress, family strife, maybe doubts and fears about your faith. Whatever it is that's troubling you, Jesus has incredible words of comfort this morning. The main point, if I could summarize the message of this passage in one sentence, the main point this morning is that in troubling times, we can be comforted knowing that through Jesus we have exclusive access to the Father. In troubling times, we can be comforted knowing that through Jesus we have exclusive access to the Father. So I want to walk us through these four comforts that Jesus gives this morning. Those are our four points. And the first one, the first comfort that Jesus gives is he says, I will return for you and bring you to the Father. We see this in verses 1 to 3. Jesus communicates this uh, through three, there's really three amazing things he says in these first three verses. He, he tells the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back for you. And you're going to be with me where I am forever. That's what Jesus says in these first three verses. Let's kind of walk through that. What does that mean? When Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, well, the disciples thought that Jesus was going to another city. But Jesus meant that he was going back to the Father in heaven. And he was going to prepare a place for his disciples so that they could be in the presence of God too. So that they could be with him in God's presence. But why did Jesus have to prepare a place? What preparation was there to make? Well, to prepare a way for sinful people to dwell in the presence of a holy God, Jesus first had to go to the cross. You see, we can't just go and waltz right into God's presence as if, you know, he's our buddy. Like, God is infinitely holy, and we are sinful. So for us to be, for sinful man to be able to walk into the presence of God, our sin must first be dealt with. So when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he's pointing them to the cross that he's about to go to. The way that Jesus is preparing a, a way for the disciples and for us to be able to enter into the presence of God is he's going to go to the cross. And he's going to die on the cross for our sin. See, the wages of sin is death. That's what we're owed. God doesn't owe you or me anything except death. That's what we've earned by our sin. But, that's, but God is also infinitely merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love, so much so that he sent his son Jesus to come and to die on the cross for our sin to prepare a way for us to enter into the presence of God. Jesus knew that the disciples would be devastated by his going away, and he knew that they wouldn't understand, but he also knew it was for their good. It must be this way because in no other way could his disciples be with him forever. There's no other way we could enter into the presence of God. You know, suffering is often like this in the, the life of believers. God ordained that the disciples would need to walk through the darkness of Saturday after Jesus was crucified on a Friday before they could experience the joy of Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. And in a similar way, God ordains that we also walk through times of hardship and uncertainty when we don't understand why. And it seems senseless to us at the time, our suffering, just as Jesus' death seemed senseless to the disciples on Black Friday. 
But it was not the end of the story by a long shot. We couldn't have entered into God's presence if Jesus hadn't prepared the way by dying on the cross. You see, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going away. But then he says, I'm, coming, I'm going to come back for you. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. Later on in chapter 16, Jesus is going to tell the disciples, you will weep and lament, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You see, Jesus would die on the cross and be buried in a tomb. But three days later, Jesus would rise from the dead and walk out of the grave, defeating death forever. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that although he was going away, his absence and their grief would not last. He would come to them again and bring them to be with him in the presence of God. In church, that same promise applies to us. We live in a world devastated by sin and by the consequences of sin. But the kingdom of God is advancing and it's already partially realized in the church. God is redeeming sinners and making them new from the inside out. And the day is coming soon when Jesus will return and restore all of creation. Amen. And not only that, Jesus promises that upon his return, we will be with him forever in the presence of the Father. Jesus went to prepare a place for us and, and he will come again so that, look, look at the reason he says, so that you may be with me also, so that where I am, you may be also. What an amazing thought. God wants to dwell with us. He wants to be with us forever. Jesus says it right here in his word, so that you may be where I am. In heaven, we will look on the face of God. Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4 describes the new creation. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. We will see His face. We will be in His presence. No more guilt, no more shame, no more fear. In heaven, we will experience the love of Christ as He lavishes grace on us forever and ever. We will rejoice together with all the rest of the redeemed, being united with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in heaven, there will be no unfulfilled desires. We'll be free from pain, death, loneliness, boredom, sin, everything. The results of the fall will be wiped away. That's the future that awaits us. What an incredibly comforting word for those of us who are walking through troubling times. Amen? On, uh, on Friday of this week, Jen and I received some unfortunate news uh, regarding our adoption process that means it's going to be delayed a lot further than we thought. And that was hard news to hear. Um, but in God's providence, the day that I got that news was the day that I was writing this sermon, studying these words from Jesus. God knew I would need this precious promise fresh in my heart. How kind God is to us. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says that He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. 
perhaps you're walking through a troubling time. Maybe you're even tempted to feel like God has left you for good. If you're a Christian, I want you to know that you have a certain future. Jesus is coming back for us, and the future that awaits us is glorious. In troubling times, we can be comforted knowing that through Jesus, we have exclusive access to the Father. This is all really good news, but that's just the first comfort. There's three more. The second comfort that Jesus gives us is He says, I am the way to the Father, and you know the way. I am the way to the Father. In verse 4, Jesus told the disciples, you know the way to where I'm going. And so Thomas, being the logical guy that he is who likes to have proof, he, he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Like we need a destination before we can know the way to where you're going. And the disciples still thought that Jesus was going to another town. They didn't understand yet that he was talking about going to God the Father. And so Jesus responded, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a massive claim and one that every single person needs to deal with. Jesus doesn't leave us any room for fence straddling in John 14, 6. Jesus outright says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. It's a take it or leave it statement. We cannot say that Jesus is a great teacher. We cannot say, well, Jesus is just one of many ways. Jesus doesn't leave us that option. In John chapter 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, so either we must believe him or we must reject him. Well, why is Jesus the only way to God? Why is that? Well, it's because what separates us from God, as we talked about earlier, is our sin. We've broken God's law, and we deserve death. To be reconciled to God, the sin that comes between us and God right now must be removed. Our debt must be paid. But the trouble is, is that the debt that we owe to God is so great that we could never repay it. God is infinitely holy. So that means that our debt to Him for our sin stretches on for eternity. That's why hell is eternal. And so we needed a perfect, unblemished sacrifice that could die in our place. And that sacrifice is Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. Only His blood is able to wash away our sin. And His resurrection three days later proved that the debt had been paid in full for all who believe. There is no other way for our sin to be removed and for us to come to God. Your good works will not suffice. There's no other sacrifice that can remove the stain of our sin. This is why Jesus is the only way to God. We can't earn our way to heaven. We can't be a good person. You can't do more good deeds than bad deeds. You could never bridge that gap that comes between you and God. It's too great and it's too big. That's why Jesus came and did it for you. Do you see the grace of God in that? It's only your pride that would keep you from such a gracious gift. If you go, no, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it my way. You know, uh, I I was talking to somebody uh, this past week. Uh, who was reminding me that I think David Platt had, had used this illustration 
in a book. And, you know, a lot of times when people have a problem with, you know, John 14, 6 saying Jesus is, is the only way, the truth, and the life. And they say, well, there, I don't like that there's one way. I, there, should be, there should be multiple ways to God. But here's the deal. If there were two ways, you'd want three ways. If there were a hundred ways, you'd want a hundred and one ways. Because the reality is, is that we just want our own way, Right? That's what it comes down to. We want our own way. We don't think, well, it'd be better if there were five ways rather than one. But here's the deal. There can't be more than one way because we've already, we've already discussed why. There's only one sacrifice that's sufficient for sin, okay? There's not multiple ways up this mountain. There's only one. So I'll ask you, have you come to him yet? Have you trusted in Jesus or are you trusting in your own works? Are you trusting in your own way? You cannot come to God in your own way. You must repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus. I urge you to do that this morning. Today, you can be forgiven of your sin. All these promises that we're reading about can be applied to you by faith this morning. This glorious future that we just talked about can be yours if you will just repent of your pride and your stubbornness and if you will humble yourself before God and trust Him. He's done this for you on your behalf. You don't have to keep trying to impress God. He doesn't want you to impress Him. He's not impressed by us. He wants your heart. You know, for believers, these words from Jesus are a great comfort because Jesus was assuring the disciples here that they didn't need to worry about whether or not they would make it to His Father's house. That's what He's saying. He says, you know, he says, you know the way to where I'm going. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid that you're not going to get there. You know the way. If you know me, then you know the way. And brothers and sisters, we have this same assurance. You do not need to be troubled by fears of condemnation and of judgment if you're walking with Jesus. Jesus has secured access to God for you. He lived the perfect life that you couldn't, and He died the death that you deserved. And it's through faith in Him that you can come to God without fear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not angry with those who have trusted in Christ, despite our sin. That's the glory of the gospel. That's why it's good news. He's not angry with you, believer. He loves you. He's, he's not just tolerating you. He rejoices over you with joy. He sees the righteous robes of Jesus covering you. That's good news. Are we excited about that this morning? Amen. Let's go. And Jesus' words here are also the reason, believers, that we must share the gospel with others. We live in a day and a time where it's considered intolerant and hateful to insist that Jesus is the only way to God. But really, it's been considered that. It's not just in this time. There's nothing new under the sun. Our culture, particularly right now, insists that there are many ways to God, like many paths up to the top of the same mountain. But as we said earlier, Jesus doesn't leave us that option. To accept Him is one of many ways. He is the way. Peter says, and he's preaching in Acts 3, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved, which means that we must proclaim the gospel to people because there's only one way for them to be saved. Now, the unbelieving world is happy to let us talk about Jesus all we want as long as we don't claim that he is the way. We can add him to you know, our mantle 
You know, if I can add them to my mantle full of all my other gods, fine. Yeah, Jesus is good. But as soon as we insist that Jesus is the way, that's where the rubber meets the road. And evangelism to that end is viewed as arrogant or hateful. But here's the deal. It's only hateful if it's not true. But if it is true, if Jesus is the only way, then it would be hateful not to share. The devil will do whatever he can to keep God's people from sharing the gospel, including trying to convince us that it's unloving to do so. It sounds ridiculous, but many Christians have bought that lie, that it's unloving for me to to press on somebody and to tell somebody and to insist that Jesus is the only way, to urge them that, no, there is is no other way to get to heaven, that, that that's unloving, that that's just a lie from the pit of hell. Because Satan hates people, he hates God, he hates people made in God's image, and he came to steal, kill, and destroy. And so he wants to silence us so that people cannot come to Christ. That's his goal. And he'll deceive, and he'll trick, and he'll scheme, and do whatever he has to do to, get, to keep us from sharing the gospel, including tricking us into believing that it's unloving to share the gospel. That's crazy. Don't believe that. We must share the gospel with people. It's the most loving thing we could possibly do. The third comfort that Jesus gives here in this passage is he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Uh, So at this point in the conversation, when we get to verse 7 and 8, Jesus, uh, the disciples had realized that Jesus was talking about God the Father. And so Philip asks, he says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Philip was asking here for a supernatural vision of God. That's what he's asking. He's like, oh, he's like, show us, show us the, uh, you know, a vision of God. And Jesus, his response was kind of incredulous. He says, "Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father." In other words, how can you say you want to see God, Philip? You're looking at him. I've been here for three years, right in front of your face. Jesus is not only the way to God, Jesus is God. He's the Word made flesh. Colossians 2.9 says that in Him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. We no longer need to wonder what God is like. He has revealed Himself to us in the person of Christ. He came and dwelt among us. That's good news. that God has come for us to make Himself known. And this, these words from Jesus here, they were a comfort, but also a bit of a rebuke from Jesus to Philip and to the rest of the disciples. And Philip and the rest of these disciples, despite having been with Jesus for three years and seeing all the signs that he performed, were still ignorant of his power and glory. And can we not be like this too? Many of you have walked with Jesus a long time. You have the very word of God at your disposal. And yet, how often do doubts arise in your hearts about what God is like or about whether or not He will do what He has said? Friends, we never have to question what God is like or what He will do. He's revealed Himself to us in the person of Christ. And this is a tremendous comfort, not just to the twelve, but to all Christians. Because in, in troubling times, we have a sure and steady anchor in Christ. Even if our circumstances are chaotic, we never have to question what God is like. Not only that, but we have confidence that because Jesus is God, 
No power can thwart His will. He is able to do what He has promised to do on our behalf. He is more than able to prepare a place for us and to come again to take us to Himself. No power of hell nor scheme of man will ever pluck us from His hand. The fourth comfort that Jesus gives, He says, I will continue to work in and through you. In verses 12 to 14, that's how I'd summarize what he said. I will continue to work in and through you. So let me read verses 12 to 14 uh, again uh, for us real quick. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name... I will do it. So the disciples were troubled that Jesus was going away. But he comforted them by assuring them that he would continue the work that he had started through them. Jesus here in these three verses is alluding to the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he's going to go into more detail about in the rest of chapter 14, and we're going to jump into that next week when we look at the second half of this chapter. But that is what Jesus means when he says, you will do the works that I do because I'm going to the Father. So because Jesus is going away, he's going to send the Holy Spirit who will dwell within his people and God will continue the work that Jesus has started through the church, through Christians. So the disciples and whoever believes will continue what Jesus has started by the empowerment of the Spirit. In fact, later, Jesus is going to tell them in chapter 16, verse 7, he says, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And this promise is not just for the 12 disciples here, it's for whoever believes. You see that in verse 12? Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. Now, you may be asking, what does Jesus mean by saying we will do greater works than he does? Well, this clearly, when Jesus says greater works, he clearly does not mean more spectacular because what could be more spectacular than raising Lazarus from the dead or walking on water? So that's not the sense that Jesus is getting at here when he says greater works. But I'll give you two things that I do think it means. Uh, first of all, the works of Jesus through his people, through his church are greater in scope. Here's what I mean by that. So Jesus' earthly ministry was limited mainly to the Jewish people um, ethnically, and it was limited mainly to uh, Israel geographically. But now, through the church, the gospel of the kingdom of God is being proclaimed to all peoples in all nations all across the world. So that's one sense in which the works, that, the works of Jesus that the church is continuing are greater in scope. They're also greater in nature. Now here's what I mean by that. So Jesus' signs and wonders that he performed, like healing the man born blind, providing um, bread and fish for 5,000 men plus women and children, walking on water, these were shadows or types of the true transformation and restoration that he would bring about after his death and resurrection. They were pointing to a future. 
They weren't an end in and of themselves. They served a purpose. That's what a sign does, okay? The purpose of a sign is not so that you can focus on the sign. The, the sign is pointing you towards something else that it wants you to direct your attention to, okay? That's the purpose of Jesus' signs. So as great as raising Lazarus from the dead was, Lazarus still died again. Y'all realize that, right? So there has to be a greater purpose beyond that. Lazarus' resurrection was a sign pointing to the eternal life that believers would have by their union with Christ. At Jesus' return, we will all have resurrection bodies that will never die or decay. And Lazarus' resurrection was a forerunner. It was a sign pointing to that reality. Or consider the, the man born blind that Jesus healed in John chapter 9. It was, it was great that his sight was restored, but that man also ended up dying after that, right? Like, like everybody dies. So the restoration of this man's sight was a sign pointing to the spiritual sight that God miraculously gives to those who are spiritually blind in their sin. And it was also pointing to the ultimate restoration of our bodies in the new creation. It's a hope that for those of us who've trusted in Christ and been forgiven of our sins, because Jesus has risen from the dead, if you've got a chronic ailment, if you are blind, one day you will be raised to life with Him and you will have new, glorified, perfect bodies. You won't have back pain anymore. You won't have blindness anymore. You won't have chronic headaches anymore. Those will all be gone forever and ever. That's what these signs are pointing to. So, as God's people, when we proclaim the gospel and walk out works of love for others, we're pointing people to Christ. Through our godly living and our bold witness, we get to be the instrument through which God transforms sinners into beloved sons and daughters. As people are saved through the church's witness, we get to literally watch God's kingdom come and His will be done in the lives of new believers. Like last week, we, had, we baptized four new believers. And we baptize these believers. Remember what I said, Romans 6, 3, and 4? They're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in new life. They've been born again. They've been made new. You see, the way that, that the works of Jesus through the church are greater than the works of Jesus in Jesus' earthly ministry is that all of Jesus' works were done in anticipation of the cross and the resurrection, but all of the works of Jesus through the church are done on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. We're on the other side of the cross, church. We get to watch the kingdom of God come right now in the lives of people. We get to watch people be spiritually raised to new life and be transformed before our eyes, to be born again. That's the sense in which we get to do greater works. And not only that, but in verses 13 and 14, Jesus explains that God has given us access to pray in Jesus' name as a means to help us carry out this task. It's not us doing the greater works in our power. We're merely the vessels. It's the Spirit of Christ in us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What a comfort. Jesus does not leave us alone to carry out His will. So all the things the church is called to do to help to, to continue what Jesus has started, to point people towards Christ, things like, Loving one another as Christ has loved us. Things like 
sharing the gospel, things like bearing the fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't leave us on our own to do those things. He actually gives us, he gives us the gift of prayer and He gives us the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be able to walk out these commands that He's given us. So as we seek to do these things, we can ask Jesus for whatever we need to help us do it, and He will give it to us. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It means praying in accordance with God's will and God's character. These verses aren't just a license to ask God for a Lamborghini, and that's what He's going to give you. That's not what He's talking about here. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying in accordance with God's will and God's character. This is a gift that He's given us to enable us and empower us to be able to do everything that He's called us to do as we continue the work that He started. So, here's a couple of practical ways this applies. Are you, maybe you're struggling to extend forgiveness to someone who's hurt you. Well, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Pray. Ask God to help you. We know that it is God's will that believers would extend forgiveness towards one another. We don't have to question that. So pray. God has given you this resource of prayer. Or maybe you're lacking in faith and in courage to share the gospel. Well, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Pray. We know that it's God's will for all believers to share the gospel because He commands us to do it. God has given you the resource of prayer. God will supply us with what we need to carry out His will as we go to Him in prayer. It is, Guys, it's crazy to try to follow Jesus without being utterly dependent on prayer. It's crazy. That's why Paul says, pray without ceasing. This is why. We can't do any of these things without His help unless we go to Him in prayer. This is why we're doing a week of prayer emphasis starting today. And we're capping it off the next Sunday with the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. As I've told you, that the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, it supports the work of church planting and missions across North America, which helps support church plants like ours around the continent. But we can't do that in our own strength. We have to pray or nothing's going to happen. We've got to go to God in prayer and we've got to ask Him to help us. We can't plant churches on our own. We can plant a service, and we can fill a room full of people, but we can't cause anybody to be born again. We can't bring transformation into the lives of people. God does that. Through us, as we're utterly dependent on Him, He's through our weakness. We're nothing. Like, we can put on a show, but what's that going to do? That can't change anybody, so we must go to Him in prayer. That's why we're going to dedicate this week to praying and pleading with God. That He would work in our midst, that He would work in our city, that He would work in our region, that He would work in our country. To see many healthy gospel-preaching churches planted, to see many people turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Oh, how we need a movement of God right now in our country. So I hope that you'll join us in praying for that. What a great way to apply what we've read this morning. Monday through Friday, each morning, join us, 6.30 in the morning. I know it's a little bit early, but... Man, it's worth it to get together with other believers and to pray and to seek God's face so that He would move in our nation. We're praying because we cannot do the greater work of planting churches and making disciples apart from Jesus. So we're taking Jesus up on His offer in John 14, 14 this week. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I'm going to ask Dan to to come up and we're going to close out 
uh, our time this morning, but I just want to leave you with two specific challenges, okay? Two very specific ways uh, to apply this. First of all, I want to challenge you to come and to join us Monday to Friday this week, 6.30, for our prayer gatherings via Zoom, okay? And I also want to ask you to sincerely pray about how God would have you give above and beyond your tithe next Sunday to support the work of missions in North America. Again, our church was planted through the efforts and the help of the North American Mission Board. We wouldn't be here today without their help. They've helped through training, through encouragement, through giving to us very generously, and we want to continue to help other churches to get planted and to get started. And so that's why I'm calling on us to prayerfully consider how to give next Sunday. 100% of that offering is going to go to Annie Armstrong. Uh, 100% of it is going to go towards the work of planting churches in North America. So I want you to pray about how God may have you do that. Um, And then if you are, if you're here this morning and maybe you just, you're not sure if you're actually a Christian or not, and you've heard the gospel and say, yeah, maybe I've been to church before or, uh, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've got baptized when I was little or I prayed a prayer one time, but I don't really know if I know God. Like I've heard, I've heard the way my friends talk about God or I've heard the way you've talked about God up here this morning and I don't really know if I know him like that. I don't know if I've ever met Jesus, if I've really understood just how good he is and how worthy he is of all of my affections. I want to encourage you today to place your faith and trust in him. This morning you can do that in your seat where you are. As we're, we transition, we're going to do a, a, a time of, uh, we're going to close with a closing song and as we're singing right there where you are, I'd encourage you to pray, to repent of your sin, to confess your need. Jesus, I know you're the only way that I can come to God. I know that you died on the cross for my sin. And I know that you rose from the dead. I want to place my faith in you and start following you from here on out. If you'd like to pray with somebody, we're going to have some people through those double doors too that you can go and that you can pray with. Uh, maybe, maybe you're already a believer, but you just need some encouragement and you, and you need comfort today. Um, Maybe you're walking through a troubling time. I want you to know that one of the ways that God comforts us is through his body, through the church. So let other believers care for you this morning. Let other believers pray for you. You can do that as we're, um, as we're singing this last song. So while we stand together, um, let me pray and then we'll close. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your promises. I thank you, God, that you are a God who comforts us in all of our afflictions. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to prepare a place for us. Thank you that you are coming again for us and that you are going to take us to be with you where you are. What a glorious promise. We love you, Lord. God, may you have all of our hearts this morning. May we worship you with all that we are. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.